Colorado. Well, turn this morning with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation. If you're here and you'd like a Bible, go to the Welcome Center there and they can hand you a Bible. Uh, but Revelation, the last book in the Bible, uh, is where we'll be looking today. Early on in our marriage, I was shocked one time to see Priscilla begin reading a book and she opened it up at the back of the book and read the last part of the last chapter. I said, what are you doing? She says, well, this is an investment of time. I want to see from the ending if it's worth reading. And I found it really hard to refute that philosophy because the ending reveals if it's worth reading. I just asked you to turn to the book of Revelation, the last book of our Bible. The ending reveals a life worth living. Because the book of Revelation tells us how the universe turns out. And when we understand how the universe turns out, we actually discover our purpose for living to know and follow Jesus Christ, the victor of the entire universe. And so all of this time, our Bibles sitting on our shelves or the Bible app or whatever has already contained in black and white for us to read and to know to the degree God's revealed it, he has shown us what's going to happen. And so in these coming uh, weeks, several months actually, we're going to be looking at the subject of Bible prophecy. Uh, I've asked you to turn to Revelation today. This will not be a verse-by-verse study through the whole book of Revelation, but it's one of the obviously major places, since almost all of it is prophetic, that we will be looking. But we will be looking at Old Testament passages and, and New Testament passages to see not only what God has told us is coming, but how it should affect the way we live now, 2020. And it's possible I'd say that the craziness of 2020 prepares us well for just understanding that the world doesn't just keep going the way we expect it to go. And that God has the sovereign providential right to interrupt life globally. In a small way, really, today. Someday in very major ways. So our study today is a, somewhat of a summary, uh, selected, and actually most of the passages in chapters 1, 4, and 5 of the book of Revelation. So, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it could well be stated by Jesus Christ. So the author, essentially, is Jesus Christ. Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, that's the apostle John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And that was 2,000 years ago. 
This revelation of Jesus Christ comes to us through a chain of communication. And if you follow those first two phrases, you'll see that God the Father authorized Jesus to tell an angel, to tell John, to tell us what is about to happen. Why did God make sure that we had a written record of these future events? Much of what we'll find in the book of Revelation is really quite frightening. Horrible things, judgment that will happen on earth. So did he write it to scare us? What does verse 3 say? He wrote it to bless us. You see, what is frightening in the book of Revelation is not frightening to us. It's frightening to unbelievers who reject Jesus Christ. But to us, it will be a blessing. So let's be sure that we are reacting to the truth of God's word always appropriately, and fear is never the appropriate response. One of the most, probably the biggest failure in our lives is to fear, because you know the command in scripture that occurs more than any other command? Fear not. Someone who has counted, supposedly, says there are 365 places in the Bible that say do not fear or something parallel, don't be anxious, don't worry, something parallel. 365 would be a good number because it tells us for every day there is a command, do not fear. So when we experience fear, a normal human emotion and reaction, realize fear does not come from God. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. So you can be very sure of this. As you're feeling fear, you can't say, well, God has given me this fear. Where does it come from? It comes from self. It come from, comes from self, and of course it is stirred up in this world by the, quote, God of this world, Satan. So he, he longs for us to fear, but, but we are not to read prophecy With a heart of fear, we are to read it with a heart of blessing and assurance that God is to assure us, not frighten us. Verses 4 and following then continue to, uh, in the greeting, if you will, of, of John, to reveal Jesus Christ and thus to reveal our purpose for life in and through Jesus Christ. John identifies himself, verse 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. These went to very real, literal churches of the first century. This is written about A.D. uh, 90. And so in A.D. 90, um, there are seven churches. They're addressed in chapters 2 and 3. And so this is is a real book. Like we just studied Colossians going to a real church. This is a real book going to seven real churches. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. You're getting the picture of of, of heaven here? And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
So these seven churches are receiving this revelation from Jesus Christ, who is called here a faithful witness. The term comes from the courtroom. And so Jesus tells it exactly how it is and how it will be. Because he is this eternal one who was, past tense, who is, present tense, and who will come, and so he is the ruler of every stage of history. He's the faithful witness, and he is the firstborn from the dead. So Jesus, who reveals this, is the risen Christ. He's the firstborn from the dead. And and what that means is not that he was the first resurrection, but he was the first resurrection to have a new, eternal, glorified body. So Jesus himself, as you would know, perhaps raised Lazarus from the dead, but Lazarus would then come back with a natural body which would die again. But Jesus is the first to be resurrected to a new and glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 says that he's the firstborn from the dead. And after that, those who belong to him at his coming will be raised. So we will be raised just like Jesus with the same kind of body. So this is really about our promise as well that we will also be raised. That changes the way we view death. It should. I was riding out the freeway this, this week, a couple days ago. Where was it? That had the sign that records how many deaths in Wisconsin? 248 people have died on the roads of Wisconsin in 2020. People are going to die. Unless we are privileged, as we will learn in coming weeks, to be part of the rapture where we will not die, Otherwise, everybody inevitably dies, but we're to have a, to- a totally different view of death. And so we, we go out and we drive on the highways to get here today or to go get groceries or whatever else, but without fear, because we know that he's the firstborn from the dead, meaning there will be many more, and you and I who belong to him will be raised and be forever in heaven with him. Middle of five, uh, verse five then continues with what reads almost like a a dedication of this book, as if an author is saying, this book dedicated to my wife, who, etc. It's kind of written like that, but it also, in the process, is, is showing us who Jesus is and how our purpose in life comes from Jesus and what he deserves. So, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. So this is dedicated to Jesus, to whom we must give glory. That's the end of the verse. But give glory because he loves us and has freed us. Look carefully at that. Loves is in the present tense. Freed is past tense. So describing Jesus' relationship to us, right now Jesus loves you. Present tense. So if you wonder what Jesus' attitude is about you right now, now you know. He is in an active sense loving you right now, no matter what. If you as a parent love your children constantly, and you do, even when they mess up, 
How much more does our, our, our Savior love us all the time? And he, he loves us. The proof is that of what he did in the past. He freed us from our sins by his blood. Do you realize how important the past tense is? You are freed from the guilt of your sin. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, your Savior, then you are already freed from the guilt of your sin. Since past, present, and future in your life, we will still struggle with sin, but you are already freed from sin. And it should change the way you view your relationship with God. So many Christians live in constant guilt, tragically so, because they somehow keep thinking that God is, that the hammer is going to fall. Now, God sees our sin present and like a loving father will discipline us. But the guilt is gone. The condemnation is gone, Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He has freed us from that. How? Through his blood. So this is right at front. We see that everything about Christ and relating to us has to do with the cross, the blood, his death had to pay for our sins. This points us to the necessity that we would put our faith in that which actually frees us from our sin. People try endlessly, it seems, to deal with their guilt about sin by doing good things to compensate. Does nothing. Takes away no sin, takes away no guilt, takes away no emotion of guilt. Takes away no regrets. The only thing that'll deal with that, and it's a progress, progression as we learn this, is to go back to the cross and say, no, I'm putting my faith in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for my sin. That is what has freed us from sin. So that then, because he loves us and freed us, brings us into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is where we find our purpose then in verse 6. That qualifies us for this purpose in life. The ending will give us our purpose. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. That's your purpose of life. As a believer, a follower of Christ, you are a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. Uh, one translation has the word kings, probably better translated here, kingdom. So we aren't individually king, uh, uh, enthroned or anything, but we are a kingdom ruled by Christ and we are priests. Let's think through this. So the, the kingdom is all believers, this is also past tense, so our status is already that we are Christ's kingdom and we are already priests. This is, this is church age truth. This is after the cross. We are his kingdom. Now, the, the, the ultimate fulfillment of this will be when we are in heaven with him, but already this is our status and this already is our purpose to function, realizing we are under the kingship of Christ spiritually and priests. Priests. How could we be priests? We don't make sacrifices of blood like the Old Testament priests. So what do priests do in a New Testament sense? What do, what do, what do believers today, how do we function as, as priests? Hebrews 13, this is New Testament. 
Through him, through Christ, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice. Get the imagery? A sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. We've been doing that this morning already through just through singing. And, and whether you're singing here, whether you're singing in your home, or whether you're singing in your car, this is important stuff to give, give praise to God. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for with such what sacrifices, God, these are pleasing to God. So our, our, our priesthood consists of giving praise and serving, doing, sharing with others. What a follower of Christ does is serve. Uh, in heaven, we will somehow be forever employed serving Christ. I don't know quite what that looks like, but if, you, if, you, if you're buying into the cartoons of sitting on a cloud with the harp and the wings, just drop all that. You don't find that in Scripture. We will be somehow uh, busy doing something phenomenal as part of the, the reign of Christ. This is our future. What does that tell us about our present? Our present is that we can do these already. We, we can praise and serve him already. Whatever we are employed in needing to do, we can serve and praise him. So evidently, our purpose is way too small if our purpose is to see how much fun we can have when we finally get off work. Our purpose is way too small if we see our purpose as accumulating money for security or stuff for our enjoyment. Our purpose is way too small if these past months our purpose has boiled down to surviving COVID. And our purpose in the next few months is way too small if we make it our purpose to get the right president elected. These are not our purposes. These are way less purposes to our primary purpose of serving and praising. So the real question we need to ask ourselves is, how should I serve him in these hard times right now? And how should I praise him in these times right now? I don't know the answer for you, but that that is what we should be praying about. God, how do you want me to serve you? It changes our view of everything. What, for what do you want me to praise you this morning? We heard some selected opportunities of that this morning already. What do you want me to praise you for? And as we do that, July and August of 2020 can be a lot different than March through June. If March through June for you has contained a lot of fear or a lot of anger, then I just invite you into the purpose of heaven, which is to be the purpose of earth, to a couple of months of service and praise. As we come to verse 7, there is a dramatic shift. The encouragement of verses 5 and 6, the tone changes. Look, or behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is about Jesus. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, killed him crucified him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him, so shall it be, amen. 
And then he identifies himself once more. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, recognize this, who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the peoples of earth who will see Christ, including those who hated him and crucified him. So we know we're talking about unbelievers. And the response emotionally will be mourning. In fact, one translation, the English Standard Version, I think gets it the best. It uses the word wail instead of mourn. Because the Greek word is actually the word for beating oneself. And that's how in that time they they would express the, the, the horribleness of their grief is to beat their chest. And so this is an unbeliever's response when Jesus returns. Well, that might raise some questions in our mind because what we're going to... But here's the answer. In the coming weeks, we're going to see how this issue of Christ returning is that he returns back-to-back, seven years apart, however, in very different ways and at a different time and for a different purpose. There's a, there's a little preview. We're going to study some of this in the coming weeks. But he, he returns in this event called the rapture when he comes for believers. And when he comes for believers, he is coming to rescue us and take us to heaven. Raise those from the dead who have died and to take us bodily and transforming our body to be in heaven forever. That's the rapture. Seven years later, after what we call the, the tribulation, the Bible calls the tribulation, he comes to judge. Pretty clear which aspect of coming this is about. This is the coming of judgment on unbelievers. Peter was describing how Jesus will interrupt normal with judgment at that time. In in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming? He promised. It's kind of funny to the world that we're going to study the Lord's return. Like, seriously, Jesus coming back? Okay, they're going to laugh. Ever since our, this is what they say, ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation, but they deliberately, intentionally forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water. So God one time interrupted things to create. What else? By these waters, the waters he had created, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Read Genesis 6 through 9, the story of the flood. Literal, true flood that covered the earth in judgment. And by the same word, because God in his infinite power does these things just by speaking them. By the same word, the present heavens and earth, this one, are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of who? Not you and me. If we're believers in Christ, it's for the ungodly, those who reject Christ. And in, there's, a, there's a sequence kind of spelled out through Scripture that there's a time in which this earth will be uh, destroyed by fire. Second Peter is referring to that. We'll be gone. So, as we talk of the Lord's coming, expect that other people of the world that don't believe in Christ would say, I don't believe that. Because things just always go on as normal, right? Could it be that this season of time is a little bit of preparation for the world to say, you know what? Getting back to normal isn't as easy as you think. 
And it's because God has the right, the authority, and the power to interrupt history anytime, any way he does. So let's not be surprised that as we study the Bible prophecy, there's dramatic this and then this, and you go, wow. We should expect that God, who is sovereign over all, would interrupt things because he is Alpha and Omega, verse 8. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's a way of saying I'm in control of everything from the beginning to the end. All of human history, I'm in full control. Who is, who was, I'm sorry, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So we know he's in charge of everything. So what do we do? Verse 6, we're kingdom and priests who serve. If you go out to eat today, there's going to be someone who's going to serve you. Go to the store tomorrow, someone's going to be at the, at the desk, at the, at the counter, the clerk who serves you. Serving means benefiting somebody else. Our life is to be about benefiting somebody else. To what end? To the glory and praise of God. So however God directs you to serve, serve. Because you are under authority when you serve, and you serve to benefit someone else. So as you think back over the last week, how has your serving gone? What conversations did you start to serve someone to benefit them, not yourself? What, what choices have you made? What sacrifices have you made that are service, benefiting others? We are made to serve. Towards what end? The glory of God. And now as we look at chapters 4 and 5, we'll see that the ultimate purpose of the universe is that God, who created it, would be glorified. Turn ahead to chapter 4. Chapters 2 and 3, we're not looking at today, but it's describing those seven churches with great application uh, to ourselves. But we're, 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 we're uh, taking a look at the ending in the sense of what heaven is like. What are the values of heaven? And as we go there, I'd like us to get a little bit of a view of the overview of the book of Revelation. Revelation is often avoided because, oh, we can't understand all that stuff. Indeed, it's, it's, in, a, it's in a unique, it's, it's in symbolic language and it's often very difficult to understand various parts, but here's something that really helps me, is to understand that some of the book of Revelation takes place in heaven, the vision that God gave John about heaven, and some of it is about what's going to happen on earth. And if we can, can just keep that division in mind, it'll begin to clarify a lot of our understanding of this important book. So let's just kind of walk through the book in a, with a big picture and realize that the when and the where... Chapter 1, we, we realize that it's, it's more about Jesus speaking from heaven. He's on the throne, and he's going to return from heaven. But the time frame is, is now, where we are now. Chapters 2 and 3, which we've now, just now skipped over, is about churches, which are part of this church age. That church age is between the cross and when Christ returns in the rapture. And, and so where do we live? We live somewhere in between. Okay, I don't, we don't know exactly where that is. And, and if you're hoping I set, I set some dates during these next couple months, you're going to be very disappointed. We just know that we are somewhere before the end of this church age. But as we keep reading in the book of Revelation, we realize that what comes next is a very distinct and literal 
seven-year time of tribulation. And so in chapters 4 and 5 that we're going to look at now, we are looking at what will be taking place in heaven during that time. And then chapters 6 through 19, that's a lot of chapters. You realize that's most of the book of Revelation? Is about what happens on earth during the Great Tribulation. That begins to make some sense then. Where are we during the Great Tribulation? We are in chapters 4 and 5 that we're going to look at now. Why? Because the rapture has taken place, and so we are in these chapters. These, these are two chapters that we're going to look at now that we're going to participate in. The judgments on earth will be taking place, and that affects unbelievers, and yet there will also be other people who come to faith in Christ during that difficult time. Then the rest of the book of Revelation, chapter 19, describes that second coming of Christ the same as uh, 2 Peter that we looked at a few moments ago. And then there is a chapter that highlights both the millennium and then the final judgment and a couple chapters at the end really describing what we would call heaven. It's the eternal state of all believers. But if you're interested in this, there's a, the, these are at the, the uh, Welcome Center and someone at the Welcome Center can give you a copy uh, of this if you just kind of a reference for understanding Revelation a little bit better. So back to chapters 4 and 5. 4 is this turning point of, of the book. And here's what John says. I'm going to find it here. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. So he's, he's, getting a, he's being transported in a vision to heaven, heaven future. And the voice I had heard at first was speaking to me like a trumpet and said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. And really it introduces, this phrase introduces all the rest of the book of Revelation, which is all future to us now. But specifically, it's, it's first what takes place in heaven during this uh, seven-year period of time. How can God say what's going to happen in the future? It's because of his attribute, his infinite attribute of omniscience and eternality. Eternality is the fact that God has always existed, who was and who is and who is to come. Omniscience is that he knows everything and therefore he knows everything that ever was, ever is, or ever will be as, as well. God knows all the past. He is the infinite, perfect historian. He knows all the present. He is the infinite, perfect reporter. He knows all the future because he is the perfect, infinite prophet. He knows everything. For him to know everything about the future requires that he controls the future. If you've, been, if you've ever watched a magician doing a card trick, you know how this thing's going to turn out. He'll say, I'll tell you what your card is. Ah, oh, it's that card. What does that tell you about the magician? He knew what he was going to do. He knew what you were going to do. And the reason he knew what card you would do is because he controlled which card you would see. Somehow. You, you as an audience don't know, but he knew because he controlled. And God knows the future because, rest assured, he controls the future as well. 
So as we see what takes place in heaven, we can know this is true and to just think that we will be here, be here. This is our experience. At once, verse 2, I was taken in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. It seems there's, there's like a, a, a clear color, a red color, a green color. Surrounding the throne, verse 4, were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Uh, the elders, 24 of them, there's a we could try to go into detail to think of what exactly they could be. I would only say this, the elders represent people. People who are in heaven, because elders in scripture are never used to describe angels. Elders are always people. Likewise, they had crowns on their head and never in scripture do angels wear crowns. People wear crowns. Uh, these are people. And they are white, which is a clear symbol of purity, telling us that they have been purified from sin. Isn't it great to know that our sin nature is going to be gone in heaven? Anybody got an amen for that? <laughs> Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. So having seen that there are people in heaven at this time, there is also angels. Spirits refers to angels and these living creatures are also a certain class of angels uh, which are now described each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes and all around, even under his wings. I'm sorry, I didn't start in verse 7. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third was like, had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings, day and night. They never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, and is to come. Third time now we've had that description. Uh, we know these to be angels. In fact, we know them to be cherubim because of the, we see the similarity of this description to what we find in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6. Their words tell us what heaven is all about. They have the job, they are assigned the task to day and night never stop saying, holy, holy, holy. Sometimes our view of holiness, God's holiness, is, is, uh, is too small because we can think of holiness only in terms of the absence of sin. That is what it isn't. Instead of what it is, which is this absolute, pure glory. And in fact, the word holy most accurately describes God's uniqueness, the onlyness of God, if you will. So you, they, you, could, you could as well say that they were saying unique, 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 different, different, 
different. God is so other than we are. Sometimes called by theologians his transcendence, so, so different than us. And then we read the words of Peter when he said, be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. We go, oh, I'm not like that. No, we are not. But that is our aspiration to be holy like he is. And now think of this. What it really means is that we are to be different, different, different than the world. So when we think of pursuing holiness, we are pursuing being different than the world. The world is consumed with itself and thus with its idols, the things that the world values. And we so often are guilty of trying to be just like everybody else, having the same goals as everybody else. This season has kind of shaken everybody up a bit. Could it be a good thing? Because you see, we've always counted on our health and being able to somehow control our health. We've counted on our jobs and that if I work hard enough, then I have a job and, and our money and our ability to travel and our ability to go to a concert or to have a graduation or to have a, a, a party or to go to a professional sports event. We have just counted on certain things that suddenly are uncertain or canceled. The only thing we can count on is him who is holy, 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 and is in charge all the time. And we can only count on his loving control, the one who holds the future. And so as he is the focus of heaven, he should be the focus of those of us who are citizens of heaven by faith in Christ. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures, the angels, give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, the people, fall down before him also who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Forever, we will be glorifying God because he created everything. Therefore, it only makes perfect sense that the purpose of the universe is to glorify the one who made it. Angels are giving glory. People are giving glory. The elders. You look around our world and, 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 and the books and the movies and the shows are not glorifying God. That's an understatement, right? God's going to fix that. And in heaven, there will only be glory to God. And only those who can glorify God will be in heaven. And, and us, even to realize, as, as the 24 elders represent us, they lay their crowns before the throne and worship. What are the crowns? Crowns are, are honors. When, if someone's wearing a crown at their birthday party, you know, okay, that's the, that's the birthday child. Crowns, various places in the New Testament, are describing rewards where God is, in some special sense, going to eternally honor us for our service to him. It's, it's, a, it's a very uh, sobering truth to understand that God rewards 
faithfulness. So he does not neglect to notice and to celebrate every growth in character, every act of integrity, every choice for purity, every step of generosity, every service of compassion, everything that we do for him is noticed and celebrated with a crown. But then, so what do we do? Now, I'm not saying these are literal crowns. We don't know the nature of of these and and, and the symbolic nature of somehow God uh, saying, well done. But do we prate around, as it were, with these crowns in heaven? I was more faithful than you. Absolutely not. These are laid down because anything we do for God was actually enabled by God. So if you teach a Sunday school class this fall, you might encourage a child spiritually, you might lead them to faith in Christ, some seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old. You will help them to understand Scripture, okay? God does not neglect to notice that. But eventually, God will get all the credit for it. And so he should, because he created the universe, and in the universe, he chose to create you, and then he chose to place you in the body of Christ, particularly this body of Christ, and then he gifted and and, and led you to do that particular service for these children. And it is only because of him that this child made this step in their spiritual growth. And so who gets the credit for that? It's all to his credit. Because he created all things Verse 11, you are worthy to get all the glory, honor, and power only because you created absolutely everything. There is nobody else that dare take any credit for what you have done. You deserve the credit. The doctrine of creation is important not only because it's true, and it is. The doctrine of creation instead of evolution is what teaches us our purpose. And the reason there is atheistic evolution at its core, the reason that exists is to take the glory away from God. Last week as I was watching uh, Seth as he was speaking, he took us for a moment to Romans chapter 1, where it's describing all these moral perversions and all the idolatry, but do you remember what was at the core? They did not glorify God, and neither were they thankful. And so that is why even as we serve, we've got to be very, very clear that we do not serve for our, for our own benefit, but that we serve for his eternal glory. As we come to chapter 5, the scene is still heaven, and uh, we are still there. And in fact, the glory, that, the glory that he receives in heaven is going to be focused on the cross, In chapter 5, verse 1, it refers to, uh, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Uh, Probably in in generality, this scroll contains the story of redemption. Sin and redemption, sin and redemption. That's the story of every dispensation, every, every period of time since creation. 
So the scroll contains this information, verse 8 then, and when he had taken it, the scroll, the four living creatures, remember, and the 24 elders, remember us, fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. If you're a believer, you're, you're one of those. Your prayers are remembered forever. It heightens the, the importance of prayer life. And they sang a new song. Here's the song. You are worthy to take the scroll. This this is your plan of salvation. And to open its seals because you were slain, the cross. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So you are the Savior who is saving people all around the globe for 2,000 plus years. And you have made them, us, In fact, uh, probably the best Greek versions of this say us instead of them, making it personal. You have made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So what will be celebrated in heaven is the salvation of mankind that God, through Christ on the cross, has accomplished. There is no bigger deal on earth or rather in heaven, than to celebrate the work of Christ in salvation on earth. Do you realize how important it is to share our faith and to proclaim the gospel? This is eternal stuff. The singing in heaven goes on. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures, cherubim, and the elders representing us. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, the cross, Jesus, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and praise and or honor and praise and glory. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Emphasis on the Lamb, what he did in redemption. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Celebrating, praising God for that crucial act of Christ who came from heaven to earth and paid the penalty for our sin. And the question is, have you placed your faith in that central event of the universe and of all time, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ who died for your sins? As we study Bible prophecy, we're going to see there's really only two kinds of people in the world, believers and unbelievers. Are you a believer in Christ? Because then this is your story, and you want to be a part of it.